This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Boulder is in an affordable housing crisis. Housing costs are rising and there's not a lot of space to build. So the city is looking to Portland, Oregon for ways to solve the problem. A group of 50 Boulder leaders from government businesses and nonprofits, uh, they just returned from several days in Portland. Alex Burness is a reporter for the Boulder Daily Camera and covered the group's visit. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Why did this group go to Portland? Are there similarities between the two cities? Uh, Yeah, so the group went to Portland um, originally because uh, the trip was planned by a couple different business groups in town, uh, Downtown Boulder, Inc., and the Chamber of Commerce. But uh, they convinced a bunch of civic leaders um, that it would be beneficial for them to go, and then some uh, nonprofit and advocacy folks hopped on. It ended up, like you said, with 50 people. And um, the two cities get compared, uh, I think, pretty often just in terms of uh, their citizenry. But um, uh, in terms of the similarities for housing, which was one of the big focuses, um, both of these cities have uh, what are called urban growth boundaries, which are somewhat unusual, Um, and I think there was an opportunity for uh, Boulder to possibly learn uh, from Portland a bit about how they're dealing with the boundary. Oregon was the first U.S. state to put uh, one of these boundaries in. It was in the 1970s. Um, So meaning that that people can't build out of a certain boundary because of, uh, let's say, geographical uh, limitations and things like that? Right. So they're designed as... uh, I guess, regional boundaries that basically try to control sprawl by setting the boundary and forcing uh, higher density, more urban development inside the boundary and going for lower density uh, immediately outside of it. There are uh, only a handful of major cities that use these, San Jose, uh, the Twin Cities, Seattle, uh, Boulder, and Portland. And so that puts them in in sort of a, a crunch when it comes to housing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, They are in a crunch just as Boulder is. And Portland has said straight up, um, this, there is a state of emergency. They they declared that last fall. You said it a second ago um, with Boulder uh, being in a a crisis. Uh, Portland's very open about that. They say, you know, we are in crisis mode. They had the highest home value rise of any city, major city in the country last year. It was uh, something like 11%. Um, Boulder, to my knowledge, hasn't issued any formal declaration of emergency uh, like that, but it's the same deal. Uh, It is a crisis. Um, One of our uh, business reporters uh, wrote just a week ago um, of about 100 total transactions from January through March in Boulder. The average uh, price tag of a single-family home here was um, about $30,000 shy of a million. And, And that's something Portland is facing too, or at least similarly facing? Yes. So, well, well there, the, the delegation heard about a unique approach to increasing Portland's housing stock. What, what's so interesting about what Portland is doing? Um, so, the, mo- the most interesting thing uh, I think that we heard about was uh, a program that they're doing around accessory dwelling units. Um, an accessory dwelling unit, this is like a new unit on the same lot. So maybe a garage that you clean up and turn into an apartment, or maybe you turn a wing of your house into a new unit or uh, transform the house into a duplex effectively. Um, In Boulder, you can set this kind of thing up, but you have to jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, It's doable 
uh, depending on the property. But um, our planning director the other day said himself, yeah, it's it's very restrictive. It's really challenging. Um, so even in Boulder, if you jump through these hoops to set up an extra unit on your property uh, to densify your lot, um, you, you got to go through these hoops, which include having to uh, run the plan by adjacent property owners and following some pretty strict construction parameters. And then you've got to pay service fees for water, for basic city services, to pay into stuff like parks and rec. That can cost 10000 ish uh, more in some cases. So what Portland did is they said, okay, we have this housing crisis. Um, our home values, like I said, you know, they, they went up 11% last year more than any other U.S. city. So they, they have this crisis. They know they're going to need more units. So they turned around and said, hey, you've got a single-family house. If you want to turn uh, an accessory de- uh, dwelling unit, on this property, go for it, and uh, not only are you uh, free to do it, or we'll make it easier for you, but uh, we will cover those service fees that I mentioned earlier. Um, and it was definitely interesting uh, sitting in the room and uh, seeing these Portland city planners talk about this uh, experimental and sort so, of experimental pro density policy. And so, what was the reaction from from the the leaders from Boulder were were they surprised by that or you know that the fact that Portland is is paying for this to, to take to take place yeah uh the incentive policy the well, like i said i mean it it was uh truly a radical thing to hear at least for uh a group of people um from Boulder um the room was kind of buzzing honestly when the presentation was over um and I don't know if this is something that would translate, um, but it's definitely something uh, for uh, Boulder leaders to chew on now. It, it'd be... So is there is there a feeling that Boulder is reluctant to change? Is this housing idea something you can realistically see Boulder doing, or, or, or are you a little bit uh, concerned about that? Well, we'll see. Uh, obviously, the point of Portland was to go and do this study tour and come home with some ideas uh, for how... Um, different policies in Portland, and I should mention they they spent a day in Eugene uh, as well. But uh, the, the the idea of um, okay, we're going to learn from them and see how maybe we can emulate or adapt some of these policies here. But yes, Boulder is uh, slow to change. It takes its time in a lot of cases, um, both in terms of dragged out short term processes for various developments. Um, or uh, longer-term stuff, Portland uh, folks uh, laugh at themselves, I think, sometimes that, that that that's a city that plans to death, um, that everything's a big public engagement, but that is uh, really especially true here. Um, so uh, one of the sort of other radical things w- we heard uh, from these city planners that day was that Portland doesn't know exactly what to expect in terms of outcomes from their new uh, uh, dwelling unit policy. Um they're not exactly thinking that thousands of people are going to take this up uh, next week, but um, what precise impact it'll have on growth, on density, on housing affordability and availability, these planners seemed pretty okay with not knowing uh, exactly. Uh, One of them said something to the effect of, hey, if it doesn't work, we didn't meet our density goals. Uh, You know, oh, well. So um, they've got a sort of calm approach to it. um, And, uh, I think some Boulder uh, people were impressed by that, but whether they adapt it uh, in some way remains to be seen. And and you mentioned, Eugene, just a second ago, you went to tour homeless camps. Uh, were there any takeaways from that visit? Yeah, there were a ton of takeaways. Um, Eugene and Boulder uh, face uh, kind of similar challenges. They're 
both uh, university towns um, with big homeless populations and similar overall populations. Eugene, I think, uh, I, I think has about 160,000 people. Boulder's closer to 100. But um, the group visited uh, a um, homeless village called Opportunity Village. Um, and then a few, and, and then the city has six sites that are called rest stops, which are um, basically uh, acre lots um, that the city leases out for a dollar a year, hmm. and um, they are sort of self-governed, self-policing um, places where homeless folks who are vetted and um, aren't in violation of any uh, rules while they're there, um, they're allowed to stick around for up to about 10 months, and they create these transition plans. Um, so this was really interesting for Boulder to see, because this is a city that, like Eugene, um, is grappling constantly with um, how to deal with camping. In the city as well. And that's something we're going to have to leave with. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Alex Burnett is a reporter for the Boulder Daily Camera. You can find his coverage on the Boulder delegation's trip to Portland, Oregon, at cprnews.org. Still to come, using robots for heart surgery. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Picture this, heart surgery using robots. The surgeon is 10 feet away from the patient, remotely operating four robotic arms. And those arms are inside the patient's body, say repairing a valve or removing a tumor or performing bypass surgery. It's the subject of today's beta test, where we explore science and technology in Colorado. Robotic surgery is most often used in gynecology and urology and has been used for cardiac surgeries for more than a decade. But it just recently came to Colorado, where Dr. Sanjay Tripathi in Denver is the only surgeon doing it. He operated on Robert Maurer of Highlands Ranch last June at Porter Adventist Hospital. They spoke to CPR's Andrew Dukakis. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Robert, let's start with you. You had a heart valve that didn't close properly. It's called a mitral valve prolapse. Why go with robotic surgery? The uh, recovery was the most important to me. It was scary enough as it is to be told that you had to have heart surgery uh, on a valve. And contrary to some people, I realized that it, it was a valve inside your heart. So I got very apprehensive, but when Dr. Tripathi said that there were three ways to do it, and the one of which being robotic, three small incisions in the right side of my chest, and a recovery time of less than a month, that sounded pretty good. Did you feel any trepidation that robotic arms would be inside you manipulating things? Actually not until I actually saw the robotic machine uh, about a month ago. I never got to see it before, but after I've seen it live, that sort of scared me again. Dr. Tripathi, paint a picture for us. You're standing at a computer. Your patient is 10 feet away. How does it work? So the patient uh, goes under general anesthesia, and then once the patient has been uh, prepped properly, then the surgeon makes these tiny or small incisions to get access for the robotic arms to go through. And the surgeon 
places the robotic camera and the robotic arms into the patient's chest. And there are four arms, correct? There are four arms uh, for the robot, yes. Okay. Uh, once everything has been placed correctly, then the surgeon goes to the console, which is you know several feet away from the patient, and then looking into the console and using the instruments in the console, the surgeon can move the robotic instruments and do the operation. And they're very precise, right? They're extremely precise. Uh, the video that the surgeon sees through the console is high-definition 3D, and it is magnified several times, so all the details are clearly visible to the surgeon. The instruments are extremely precise, and so the surgeon is able to do these fine movements inside the chest while being able to see every single detail. And we've posted a video of the robot performing heart surgery and another where the robotic arms are peeling a grape, just to give you an idea of how precise these are. Those are at cprnews.org. While it's been around for a while, this isn't a widespread technology. What interested you in it? So, um, you know, surgery and medicine in general has been moving towards less and less invasive techniques, which lead to uh, better patient outcomes, uh, shorter recovery, less pain. So early in my career, um, I noticed that cardiac surgery was one particular field where we were still using the techniques that had been developed several decades ago, which involved opening the chest uh, from top to bottom and doing the operation. And when I came across the technology that was being developed I took time uh, to go out and train with uh, some of the pioneers who started uh, robotic cardiac surgery in the United States and train and develop my techniques to be able to do these. Would Robert have had to have open-heart surgery had he not gone this way? So uh, one of the steps that were taken in transition from the traditional completely open-heart surgery while cutting the breastbone towards robotic surgery was to be able to do this surgery from the right chest, but still requires a large incision between the ribs. And Robert could have had surgery with that technique, opening the chest on the right side. Uh-huh. So a lot less blood loss, um, smaller incisions, a big difference. Uh, it's a huge difference uh, for the patients and also for the surgeon who is doing the operation. There is significantly less blood loss and need for blood transfusion. There is a less incidence of infection after surgery. We are not cutting any bones, so there is no chance of infection in the bones. There is much faster recovery. Patients have less pain, and they're able to get back to normal activities uh, much sooner after robotic surgery as compared to open surgery. And Robert, how quickly did you bounce back after surgery? Well, uh, it was actually three weeks, uh, almost to the day, and I had a golf league with my elder friends, and I went out and chipped and putted each hole, drove a cart instead of walking, but uh, chipped and putted within three weeks. The next day, I went to see the doc and asked him if it was okay if I go ahead and swing the club. And he said, well, certainly. I never cut any muscles. I didn't cut any bones. And the valve is fine. So go ahead. And within three weeks, I, I golfed without permission. And three weeks in a day, I golfed with permission. <laughs> <laughs> any pain? 
a little discomfort. There was nerves that were disrupted or torn, um, but no muscles, so it didn't affect that at all. So once I got reconditioned within about two months, I was back hitting almost same normal game. What kind of complications can come up with this kind of procedure versus traditional heart surgery? Well, robotic heart surgery is still heart surgery. So um, all the complications that you can see with traditional heart surgery can still happen with robotic heart surgery. With this particular platform, there are some unique situations that you can run into, particularly with the uh, wiring and electrical systems, and uh, you can potentially injure certain structures inside the patient that are not in your view uh, at that time. And that might not happen in traditional surgery. That's correct, because you're not using these electrical uh, equipments during traditional surgery. So there are certain uh, complications that can happen from the robot using the robot itself. But um, I think robot is a tool like any other tool it has its ups and downs. And uh, if it is used properly with caution, the results are extremely good and the patient satisfaction is very high. Are there people who might not be a great candidate for this kind of surgery? That's right. As with any surgery, uh, it has to be, uh, patients have to be properly evaluated by the surgeon and not all patients are candidate for robotic heart surgery. So um, every patient has to be evaluated by a surgeon who performs robotic surgery to see if that patient is a candidate. We talk a lot about expense in healthcare. Is this technique a lot more expensive? So there is a significant expense in buying the robot for the hospital. Um, but the robot itself, once bought, can be used in a variety of applications, not just heart surgery, but in gynecology, urology, and general surgery. However, even though there is a cost to the hospital, I think the benefits from the robot, particularly the quicker recovery and the less pain and discomfort and the return for the patient to an active lifestyle and a productive lifestyle uh, compensates for that expense. And from what I understand, there is no extra expense to the patient or to the insurance companies. Robert, Dr. Tripathi, thanks for being with us. Thank My you pleasure. Thank you, Andrea. Dr. Sanjay Tripathi is a surgeon with Colorado Cardiovascular Surgical Associates. Robert Maurer, his patient, lives in Highlands Ranch. They spoke to Andrew Dukakis. You can see video of the robotic arms performing surgery and peeling a grape at CPRnews.org. Up next, the entire police force in one small Colorado town resigned this month, but that's not the most interesting part of the story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The entire police force in one Colorado town has resigned. It happened all of a sudden, and even the mayor didn't understand why they quit. If you find yourself in an emergency situation in Green Mountain Falls, don't bother calling police, wrote one report in the Washington Post. Now, what I'm telling you is technically true. Green Mountain Falls did lose its police officers earlier this month, but national reports about it seem to be overblown. And our next guest says that teaches a lesson about modern news coverage. Corey Hutchins is a columnist for the Colorado Independent and the Columbia Journalism Review. Welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? Well, so you went to Green Mountain Falls, which is northwest of Colorado Springs, after seeing some alarming headlines. It's a community of less than 700 people. Uh, What did you find there? 
Um, well, the, the, when I went to Green Mountain Falls the other day, uh, which is about 20, 20, 25 minutes from, from where I live in Colorado Springs, mm-hmm. uh, I, I found that, uh, the town had not descended into complete chaos or was not, uh, looting in the streets or, uh, burned out buildings or anything like that. It was not complete anarchy in this, uh, tiny little village that's kind of tucked into the, uh, Rocky Mountains here. Um, instead, uh, what I found was, uh, some some folks who live and work there pretty bewildered by the uh the national news that their little town had gotten um, you know their their town had been on CNN uh, time magazine had written about it and, and the washington post and then uh news outlets as as far away as the united kingdom were reporting that their entire police force had resigned and, and there were some some headlines that were quite quite alarming is the way they covered it indicative of a trend Oh, I, I think so. Um, you know, I was thinking about how I came across this story, and I probably heard about it like most people did on on my Facebook news feed. And when you see a headline, entire police force suddenly resigns in Colorado town, who wouldn't click on it? You want to know why. The problem was I couldn't really find out why or what it meant even when I, you know, I was just clicking through all these news reports trying to kind of find some original reporting. And it seemed like they had just – uh, gone off of you know one local TV report or one newspaper report from the Daily in Colorado Springs, and that's why I decided to go there and and check it out. And uh, what I came away with was a story with uh, almost the complete opposite headline. I think the headline we used was, "Sure, the police force in Green Mountain Falls resigned." Uh, so what? You know, I got to say that the they only have one paid police officers, and the others were volunteers. Uh, and is it true the national reporters didn't even go there? Oh, I don't think they did. Um, I, you know, the local reporters uh, did. A TV reporter went there and, and likely a reporter from the, the local daily in Colorado Springs. Um, but I don't know how much time they spent actually talking to people and seeing, you know, putting this story in context. Because once it was pretty clear to me, uh, once I started asking folks, A, if they've heard about it, and some of the folks who lived and worked there didn't even know, and it had happened a few days before. Uh, so it was kind of a Pretty quiet news in the town, but huge news outside uh, by, you know, news for people reading about it who had never been there uh, or never heard of the town before. And and that was one of the things that was that some of the folks I spoke to (laughs) thought was uh, was really funny. You know, they 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 said pretty much like, come on, you guys, this is really silly. So so is this just clickbait, plain and simple? I think it probably is. Um, And and. It's you know it's it's pretty easy to do uh, these days. You see a lot of uh, news outlets will run uh, provocative headlines about stories that aren't happening in their uh, you know in their their coverage area, and it, it's it's kind of a shame because you go to Green Mountain Falls and you talk to some of the folks there and they laugh about what the national media uh, and some media in their own state is saying about or writing about their town. Um, when the people who live there actually want uh, real local coverage. And Green Mountain Falls doesn't have, I don't think, its own newspaper. It is served by a couple small community weekly newspapers that cover the the counties around there. And it is served by um, the local alternative weekly, the Colorado Springs Independent, uh, which does have a newspaper box near the post office. Uh, I hope that um, that newspaper might have something, you know, maybe next week about what happened in their town because they – you know, the people who live there want to know what's going on, too. And they shouldn't have to get that from national news that's kind of blowing it out of proportion. Well, I guess to play devil's advocate, in the case of Green Mountain Falls and the police story, who's harmed by the story getting a little out of control in the national media? 
Yeah, it's a question I asked um, a couple who I found working in a kind of a jewelry shop there called uh, Stones, Bones, and Wood. And, I, and, and they kind of said, you know, we don't really know. Is this bad news for the town or is it good news for the town? Um, they were hoping that maybe some curiosity seekers might come to Green Mountain Falls and maybe buy a souvenir. But on the other hand, you think about what if somebody's trying to sell a house there, okay? And the first Google result or the first – 50 Google results, for, goes, Google results for Green Mountain Falls is that their entire police force resigned with no context about why or how or, or whether that even means anything. So, so how much do these trends we've talked about have to do with staffing issues at news outlets? You know, we seem to hear all the time that journalism profession is, is suffering job cuts and shrinking. So with less staff, it may be harder to send someone to the town of Green Mountain Falls to report on its police force. I think that's absolutely correct. You go back 10 or 15 years and these newspapers like the Denver Post or the Colorado Springs Gazette could have had news bureaus in out in the counties. Now they don't anymore. It's all in the metro areas. And you have to thank a publication like mine, the Colorado Independent, which is based out of Denver as an online news uh, nonprofit that – you know, I can ask my editors, hey, I want to go there and check out this story and it's going to take me half the day. And they say, hey, go do it. You write Green Mountain Falls has considered getting rid of the one paid police position anyway, since the town has a low crime rate. It gets help from the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. So do we know at the end of the day why the police chief resigned? No, the new mayor. Uh, so it, I'm, I'm thinking it's, it's likely political and it has to do with uh, recent turnover on the town board. They did just have an election recently. And the new mayor said this isn't the first time this has even happened. The town has been without a local police. They call him a marshal uh, or police chief. Those terms are interchangeable. They've been without one before. Uh, It happened. The fire chief told me the same thing happened after one of the previous elections. Same thing. So it's it's not the end of the world for for Green Mountain Falls. It's happened before. uh, You know, one of the biggest uh, crimes there that happened in recent you know, recently was that a beloved goose named Roy had been killed by loose dogs at the duck pond. So, so not the chaos that, that possibly was written about uh, in the national headlines. Uh, Corey, thanks for being here. Hey, you bet. Thank you. Corey Hutchins is a columnist for the Colorado Independent and the Columbia Journalism Review. Find a link to his reporting from Green Mountain Falls at CPRnews.org. The Man of a Thousand Faces was the moniker for silent film star Lon Chaney. A Colorado Springs native, Chaney's ability to transform himself into bizarre or grotesque characters made him famous. This is particularly evident in the 1920s film The Phantom of the Opera and The Unholy Three, both of which screen at the Denver Silent Film Festival this weekend. David Menefree wrote the book The First Male Stars, Men of the Silent Era, which includes a chapter on Chaney. And David, welcome to the program. Good morning, Nathan. Cheney was born in 1883, and you say the way he communicated with his parents as a child set him up to be a great actor. Why? Yes, it did. His parents were both born deaf, Hmm. and in trying to communicate with them on a daily basis, Lon learned to use facial expressions and gestures and body language as the only means of communication with them, and that set him up to be able to use those same skills in early cinema, which was silent, and the only way an actor could communicate were with those three tools, expressions, the look in your eyes, the gesture, your body stance. And I think because of that, he was one of the most influential, fluent, and and moving performers ever to be in a motion picture. 
I understand his family was also very poor. His mother was was often sick. So the children had to pitch in financially. Uh, Cheney dropped out of school very young to get a job, and that led to his interest in acting as well. How did that work? He was working his first job in his teens as a tour guide on Colorado's Pikes Peak. It was just for the one season, and when winter came and that job ended... He was drawn over to the Grand Opera where his brother worked, and Mm. his brother enabled him to get a job as a prop boy. And that was Lon's first experience in the theater, and he had a wonderful opportunity there to observe the uh, touring actors and especially a great star of that era named Richard Mansfield. Richard Mansfield was known for playing character parts and using uh, extreme makeup and heavy costumes, and Lon had a God-given opportunity to observe him very closely as he transformed himself from his real face and figure into somebody else. And I think that influenced him so deeply that he carried over himself in his own work doing the very same thing later in life. And, of course, he was, he did it superbly. And Richard Mansfield, like you say, was particularly known for his stage portrayal of characters like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the late 1800s. Uh, following right. a very public and brutal divorce in 1914, Cheney found himself once again unemployed, broke, and now a single father. How did that drama in his personal life push him from live theater into the motion picture industry? There was a big change going on in the theater at that time, and it was because of the growing popularity of films. Movies were in wide circulation, oh, I'd say about a around 1905. It was already a, a global market. And because of this, fewer people were going to the theaters in each little town. They were instead going to the movies because they were a lot cheaper and they were a lot better. And because of that, one by one, theaters began to dry up and go away. Well, the only work left for actors was in films. And Lon was in California at the time, and a friend of his invited him to come down to Universal Studios and uh, grab some day work, which he did, and he began to do very well. He started appearing in uh, any role he could get, particularly in a kind of a character part, and even wrote some pictures, and he even directed some films. But he found out through that early experience that there was a, a niche he could get into, and that was doing something that nobody else was doing. And that was character work under heavy makeup and great costumes. And he took to it like a duck to water. And he played, uh, you know, characters like a disabled beggar in the 1919 silent film Miracle Man. You say that's when critics started to take note of Lon Chaney. Another performance considered by many as one of his best is, of course, the 1925 film The Phantom of the Opera. What do you think he brought to this film that made him so memorable? He brought to it a type of characterization that no one has duplicated. It wasn't the first time the movie had been made. There was an earlier version in 1916 and, of course, many versions since then. But this particular film directed by Rupert Julian, as you know, it's about the phantom haunting the Paris Opera House and causing murder and mayhem as he's trying to make the woman he loves a star. Lon brought to it a depth of characterization and even a, uh, a push a push into the, the real area of genuine horror that others haven't done. Later versions and the ones we're seeing today with the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical tend to go more towards romance. But in this 
version from 1925, Lon reaches for something that's truly grotesque, genuinely horrifying, and really scary. And there is that that classic scene where where uh, the the lead actress turns around and grabs the mask off of Lon Chaney and that that horror of, of the close up of that horrible mask and that was all him contorting his face with just a bit of makeup, right? Yes, it was. And for those who are going to the festival to and see this film for the first time this weekend, they're in for a real treat. I, I liken it to that moment when you're on a roller coaster and it makes that first dive downward and causes you to scream. And you would jump out of your seat if you could. You'll This happens even today in that moment, and it's truly unforgettable. I think they're in for a real treat. Uh, the Unholy Three, which also screens this weekend at the festival, is about a gang of criminals trying to pull off a heist. And Cheney is mostly disguised as an old woman in it. Correct. So not a lot of makeup, but again, still that that transformation. That's right. He actually plays Professor Echo, a ventriloquist, and he leads a group, a trio, this unholy three into a bizarre robbery scheme. And he does impersonate this old woman very well. There's an interesting climax. It's a fascinating look into his work. And of course, it's his later work by 1925 when the movie making process was at its zenith and it was as close to perfect as it ever could be and i think what we're seeing this weekend is a great print in 35 millimeter with a live orchestra and it's you can see it the way it's meant to be seen and every subtle nuance of his great and memorable performance in this will be clearly visible and it's one that'll give you a chance to see him be able perform two roles at the same time and Cheney, uh, being so uh, engrossed in that, that, that facial expression that made silent films what they were, he only made one talking film, also known as Talkies. It was a 1930 remake of The Unholy Three. But you say That's he right. really resisted this transition to talking pictures, though. Why, why was that? He did. A lot of the great stars towards the end of the silent era felt that adding voice and sound to movies was not unlike painting a statue. It just wasn't necessary. And some of them did resist it. The most outstanding holdouts were Lon Chaney, Greta Garbo, and Charlie Chaplin. Lon Chaney held back because he felt that his ability to perform with his face and with gestures in his body was enough. But there was no no shyness on his part. He'd been on the stage. He'd been a singer. He'd been a dancer. He certainly was very adept at using his voice. Uh, the others held out for other reasons. Greta Garbo, because her German accent was so intense, and Charlie Chaplin, just because he didn't think his silent comedy pantomime would translate to talkies. They were both wrong. They both did very well. But Lon does something remarkable in the 1930 remake of The Unholy Three. He actually uses five voices. He's the ventriloquist, the old woman, the dummy, the parrot, and a girl, proving that he was not just the man of a thousand faces, but he very well could end up being the man of a thousand voices. But he still resisted that. Uh, Lon Chaney passed away fairly young at the age of 47. Is it true that his illness was tied to his acting career? He probably had developed throat cancer before there was an accident. And the accident you're referring to was during the making of his last silent picture called Thunder in 1929, in which he played a a retiring railroad engineer uh, leading this train through the snow-capped mountains. And Hmm. in one of the scenes, they were using fake snow. 
A couple of those flakes lodged in his throat and aggravated the condition that was probably already there. He did have surgery several times for throat cancer, and they were unsuccessful. And sadly, he died uh, just before that movie premiered, as you said, at the age of, uh, age of 47. He probably would have had a remarkable career had he gone on in sound pictures because there were many that were already in the works for him, including Dracula, which was later performed by Bela Lugosi. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. David Menefi is the author of The First Male Stars, Men of the Silent Era. His book includes a chapter on silent film star Lon Chaney, a Colorado Springs native. Two of Chaney's films, The Phantom of the Opera and The Unholy Three, screen at the Denver Silent Film Festival. The festival is this weekend at the Alamo Draft House in Littleton. Still ahead, we talk with an award-winning chef about his kitchen nightmares. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Even the best chefs sometimes miss the mark. Julia Child embraced her mistakes on TV, and Dan Aykroyd lampooned her in the late 70s on Saturday Night Live. In this famous skit, he cuts his hand, spraying fake blood everywhere, but Julia, she remains calm. And you place the chicken on its stomach and cut along the backbone to the Pope's nose like so. Oh! Oh! Now I've done it. I've cut the dickens out of my finger. Well, I'm glad in a way this happened. You know, accidents do Well, when we learn that a Denver chef was up for a James Beard Award this year, sort of the Oscars of the culinary world, we just had to ask about his kitchen horror stories. Of course, you're going to talk about all your kitchen successes. We wanted to hear about your horror stories. Alex Seidel of Fruition is with me. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Nathan. Before we talk about failed dishes, uh, the kitchen can be a dangerous place, as we just heard. Are there any scars you could tell me about? You know, I don't have too many battle wounds, uh, but having those scars is pretty much a normality in the kitchen these days. So you never, you've never lost a finger, of course. You've got them all there. I have all <laughs> 10 digits. <laughs> Do chefs at the top of their culinary game still have kitchen disasters? Absolutely. I'm in the process of opening a, a, a commercial kitchen right now, and it seems to be a disaster as, as we're going. What do you mean? Talk about that. You know, it's uh, the fourth fourth place I've designed as far as a kitchen, and uh, it's never easy. Every place is different. Um, right now we're having equipment issues. Uh, we got sent a propane stove instead of a gas stove. And that makes a difference? That makes a difference because you can't use it. Oh. So, you know, and it just seems to me that you're moving from kitchen to kitchen to kitchen. Uh, do you have to learn different things per kitchen in that sense? Yeah, every every kitchen has its nooks and crannies. Uh, every Everyone has uh, – you know, it's just a, it's just different atmosphere, different environment, and uh, takes different skill to work work each kitchen you work in. Your restaurant in Denver, Fruition, which opened in 2007, is farm to table. Uh, Zagat has called you a local innovator and one of the quote truly pioneering chefs in Denver. I'm sure that doesn't just happen. Uh, you know, uh, experimentation must breed disaster. Is is there one that stands out when you were creating your menu for Fruition nine years ago? You know. Um, you know, I think uh, the menu evolution, it, it changes. You change as a chef. You, you develop new ideas. Uh, we're doing different food now than we were 10 years ago. Um, but we certainly had some disasters at the beginning of fruition, and uh, there was one in particular that comes to mind that basically ruined our show for, the, for a good hour. What do you mean? Um, we were, boy, I, I remember it being probably a 90-plus degree day 
uh, Friday, Saturday night. I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, if you've ever been to uh, fruition, the kitchen is a shoebox. It's a tiny little kitchen, five guys huddled in there like sardines, and uh, we were working. We were all hustling through service and uh, putting out all our plates, and we kind of have a show counter uh, where all the plates are plated on. We put down a nice little white linen tablecloth, Mm and uh, up above us, uh, there is a shelf, and on that shelf was a glass bottle of balsamic vinegar. And it got so hot in the kitchen that that bottle of vinegar exploded in the middle of service, drenched everybody with balsamic vinegar, (laughs) glass all over our plating surface. The food all had to be thrown away in the middle of service. The plates all had to be scraped and redone. Uh, it was it was interesting. And so how does one recover from that? You've got, of course, patrons I- in the front of the house. And they can't know about it. They can't know about those disasters. So uh, they're not expecting anything but a nice plate of food in a timely manner. So it was basically just ripped down the line. Everybody shuffled. Every Instead of plating and using their utensils to put food on plates, it was let's get everything taken care of, re- redone, and uh, we kept going. I've read that you have zero rules in your kitchen saying, quote, rules are for children or for those who don't know any better. Why is that? You know, I like to think that, uh, you know, part of our success at Fruition and Mercantile, uh, at the farm, and now at Food Mill, our newest venture, is really about the people. Uh, We wouldn't have the success without the people that uh, make up all those places. And I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by a good group of uh, a good team. And uh, when when we hire for people, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for professionals. We're looking for people who want to make this their career. And uh, with that, you get people who are dedicated to the craft. And uh, for that, if you have those types of individuals in your atmosphere, in your culture, you know, hopefully rules are rules. You know, they're a little stuffy. And, and you, you say you, have, of course, have fruition, mm-hmm. then uh, the mercantile uh, provisions and, and, and dining, dining provision. provisions. And, of course, the farm in Larkspur where you have animals and, and plants there. Have, has that taken you out of your kitchen role? Has, has the disasters maybe moved from the kitchen now to the back office? You know, uh, the last year of my life is certainly one that I've been looking inside of myself. Uh, you go from one culture of 25 people every day and being a part of that culture and you know, uh, being vested in that team every single day, six days, seven days a week, and then you split yourself between two cultures. Uh, so it makes it challenging. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, uh, certainly had my little bouts with, uh, my own, uh, I guess anxiety or, you know, taking that role from being a chef or being a cook, you know, that's all I know is cooking. And, uh, I've done it for 25 plus years and now I'm kind of taking on different roles uh, with the restaurants and overseeing all the operations and uh, also working on advocacy and, and giving back to our community. So uh, do, do you ever – I mean, of course, you still get into the kitchen. Do you want to do that more or is it really trying to find that 50-50 balance? You know, it is good balance. I don't, I don't think I could ever uh, last on the line every Friday, Saturday night with these young kids, uh, 23 years old, that are, are running these kitchens. Uh, They do a great job, and uh, I don't know if I have the speed to keep up with them anymore. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're chatting with James Beard Award finalist, Chef Alex Idell. His restaurants Fruition and Mercantile are in Denver. 
Let's talk about the James Beard Award, named for the American food writer who championed this country's culinary heritage. You were a semifinalist in 2012 and 2013 for Best Chef Southwest, and you're a finalist in that award this year. What is Colorado's culinary style? You know, I don't know if Colorado has a culinary style for really? sure. I uh, I actually sat down with a focus group uh, two weeks ago, and we talked about this one particular subject. And can Colorado be defined by cuisine? Um, and I'm not so sure it can. I think uh, when you look back uh, to the wild, wild west, we were known for buffalo and elk and uh, – you know, cow balls. Yeah. So, uh, you know, now I think things have evolved a little bit and, uh, uh, we've developed as a, as a community with uh, good food and it's been. So, so we're losing this cow town image, you think? I absolutely think so. I, I think when I moved here in 2002, it certainly still resonated. Uh, we were a meat and potatoes town and, you know, I still think we are, and I don't think we should shy away from that either. Uh, but certainly, uh, the palates of our, uh, guests have improved you know, have uh, evolved over the last five, even five years. Yeah, uh, We're serving different foods that we couldn't serve five, seven years ago. I, I was reading that you also can plate things differently and, and present them differently now that you've established yourself as a culinary uh, person here in, in Denver. Well, plating is certainly uh, an art as a chef. Um, that is where your creativity comes into play uh, once you take the ingredients uh, from its heat source or uh, and put it onto the plate, it, it certainly takes an eye and uh, some precision to make those plates look beautiful. So you're saying that we should probably not lose sight of our Cowtown image in a sense. I don't think so. I think uh, it's part of our history and it's part of uh, our community. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we should ever shy away from that. Are you going to be doing anything differently this weekend in the lead up to the, to the James Beard Award ceremony in Chicago? In what way? Well, are you going to be pacing back and forth at your house or maybe cooking up an extra <laughs> omelet or something or two? Or what do you do when you're under that kind of stress? You know, I uh, I try not to carry too much stress with me. I mean, I certainly uh, juggle a few balls in the air. Um, but I think if uh, you can kind of keep an even keel to yourself, try not to get too high, too low, uh, things usually work out. Uh, there's no pressure I don't believe to win this award. I think uh, just being nominated is an award in itself. And I think it's, like I said, I think it's great for all of our teams at Mercantile and Fruition the Farm. So let's say uh, you, you do have a stressful disaster happen. Do, do, you, do you pull yourself out of the kitchen, maybe go to the farm for a couple of days? What do you do to, to recover from, from something like that? Well, uh, secretly between you and I and everybody else listening, <laughs> uh, the farm was a way for me to, uh, to graduate a little bit from cooking. You know, uh, you certainly... When you do things over and over for a period of time, you need to kind of push yourself to develop and learn more. And really, that's what the farm was about. And it was really an excuse to get out of the kitchen. And you purchased that in 2009, isn't that right? 2009, yeah. Had you had any experience in farming to that point? Zero. Zero. I come from Wisconsin. A lot of people think uh, because I make cheese and come from Wisconsin that I must have grew up on a dairy farm. Well, you did not? <laughs> I, did, I did not. I, uh, I grew up in the city playing soccer, so... Have you written your thank you speech or maybe you are, uh, you know, practice your winning face or your, your losing face for these awards? You know, uh, somebody at Mercantile just asked me that last night. And, uh, you know, I said that uh, I don't I don't know if I'll have time to develop a speech. Um, I think I'll have a speech maybe in my head if it happens. Uh, but I'll just be excited to be be there at the uh, ceremony. So when do you leave for that? Uh, my wife and I are leaving on Sunday. 
Uh, my chef, Matt, from Mercantile, uh, and my uh, GM, Adele, from Mercantile, are going to be joining us uh, in Chicago. So it should be a great time. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Chef Alex Seidel is a finalist for James Beard Award uh, for the Best Chef Southwest. His restaurant's fruition and mercantile dining and provisions are in Denver. His farm is in Larkspur. Boulder's Frosca Food and Wine is also up for an award. The winners will be announced on Monday. And that is our show for this Friday. Thanks to Rachel Esterberg, our managing producer, Michael DeYuana, Andrew Dukakis, Nathan Heffel, myself, of course, Cree Maddox, and Stephanie Wolf are all producers of the show. Audio engineers, Malcolm Hughes and Matt Hers. And, of course, find us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook at CPR News. And Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of CPRnews.org, then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.